I want to thank Katie and Emma for the piece that they've just played. They are two of our many high school seniors who are graduating this year, but without any graduation. Around town here in Princeton, maybe it's the case where you live as well, there are front yard signs appearing with this very timely and appropriate message. And I want to use this moment to assure our seniors we're going to take some time in a service in June and honor and pray for you in a special way. And that's because we love you. Because this church, alongside your family, this church is your other family, your gospel family. And that idea, gospel family, is what this morning's sermon is all about. So take a Bible, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are in the middle of a five-part series on why we need the church, even And especially when there is no church, so to speak. So much of the church has become just memory. You know, gathered worship in our sanctuary, coffee and bagels out in the atrium for those here at Stonehill, nursery, youth group, Sunday school for all ages. We need the church all the more in such times. And we've seen so far two reasons why. We need the church when there is no church in order to keep us gospel-centered, 1 Corinthians 15. We need the church to rescue us from the empty values and the messages of the world, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today, we need the church when there is no church in order to learn how to love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Christ demonstrated his love and his power in dying and rising again. And he did so not simply to rescue us by us out of condemnation. Hallelujah, that's true. But he did so in order that the love with which the Father loved the Son might be in us who trust him. 1 Corinthians is our text, therefore, an appropriate text. It is the most famous passage in 1 Corinthians. Here in the West, it is arguably the most famous passage in the entire Bible. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is God's word. 
You know, the first place that we learn about love is in our birth families. Sadly, in too many cases, we also learn in our birth families about the lack of love. Now, now I'm from a a Boston-Italian family of the middle 20th century. Our family was reasonably stable and functional. I know that wasn't the case for many of you. That's sad for me. That's sad for all of us. But that said, I learned a lot of lessons about love from my birth family. There were six boys plus mom and dad. Here's a picture. That's me, one up from the bottom with with the smile there. You see that guy in white, the guy in the white sweater over on the right? He's number three in the birth order. I single him out because he teased me incessantly, constantly. And I learned to let some of it roll off of me. I learned to be patient and hang in there. I learned to laugh with those who laughed. I learned gradually how to confront when he crossed a line. I learned lessons of loving a brother. You see that big hulk up on the top left? He was my hero. He was a football star. I was not. And I learned a bit of what it means to overcome jealousy and resentment and to love him instead. We all learn lessons on how to love and how not to love from our birth families. God planned it that way. But, but God's church takes all this to an entirely new level. That was certainly the case with the Corinthians. The Corinthian culture was busy, prosperous, open, variegated, constant, individualized, sensory, sex-soaked, experiential, and pleasure-driven. Corinth was like New York City, cosmopolitan wealth. It was like Los Angeles, visual dazzle all around. It was like Las Vegas, immersed in in an entertainment mentality. And out of that, God called his people. He rescued them in Christ. He gave them his Holy Spirit, and he directed them to love one another. Now, look at my birth family again. I mean, we were very, very different, but we were so alike. I mean, just look at us. We looked alike. We dressed alike. We laughed alike. We talked alike. We, we ate alike. Six boys, actually. We, we gulped down food alike. I mean, sure, there were times when it was hard to learn to love my brothers, but mostly it was easy because we were alike. Relative to the church. That's a point to be made. But in the church, in Corinth, there were few birth family similarities in the Corinthian church. That church was composed of people from all kinds of places, speaking all kinds of languages. Some rich, some poor, some Roman, some Greek, some Jewish, some educated, some illiterate, some on the top, some on the bottom. And wow, did they know how to fight with each other. 
And did they know how to envy? And did they know how to put one another down? And did, did they know how to use one another? Did they, know, did they know how to ignore one another? We learn the specifics of all that in most of the letter. But along comes chapter 13, which is like this, this wonderful island. This, as someone put it, this, this hymn about love. Uh, the text is beautiful. But in its Corinthian setting, it is not a hymn about love. This passage is hard, pointed, ethical and apostolic confrontation of a group of people for whom Christ died who desperately needed to learn how to love each other. And you know what that meant then? You know what that means today? That there were people in that congregation who were downright difficult to love. 1 Corinthians 13 sobered them up. It sobers us up today. It presents to us in unforgettable fashion, first of all, the gospel priority of love. Secondly, the gospel demands of love. And thirdly, the gospel permanence of love. Now, there's plenty in the chapter to talk about. I'm, I, I can't deal with the whole chapter. I'm only going to focus on the first seven verses, the gospel priority of love and the gospel demands of love. So let's start with the gospel priority of love and how easy it is to downgrade it. The Christians that Paul was writing to had mixed up ideas of what it meant to be spiritual. Many of them thought, oh, well, hey, to be spiritual means that you have some sort of, of, of remarkable, supernatural superpower. In their case, tongues, speaking ecstatic languages, languages of angels, as Paul puts it in verse 1. And it's easy to think that way, you know. So-and-so is really, really spiritual because she speaks in tongues or because he, he really knows how to pray or because she knows how to cast out demons or because he knows how to fast for a week. Now, all that is great stuff, but what Paul is saying in this text is that without love, all that is noisy and attention-getting and not in harmony with the gospel. It's a clanging symbol or a noisy gong. Verse 2. Others whom Paul was addressing thought, well, to be spiritual means that you have deep, advanced knowledge about God and his truth. I mean, look at the text. He writes about understanding mysteries and knowledge. These are not pagan mysteries. These are Christian mysteries, Christian knowledge. And he says, without love, I am nothing. Now, this is a stern and sober warning to educated people like so many in Princeton who are just naturally attracted to people with superior knowledge. And if those with superior knowledge do not know how to love the way this passage presents it, then, in Paul's words, they are nothing. 
Verse 3, still others to whom Paul was writing were saying, well, it's missionaries, it's martyrs, it's people who have, who have suffered for the faith. These are the ones who are spiritual. And again, again, Paul punctures the illusion. He says, if I, if I give away, by the way, that's a beautiful verb, if I parcel out bit by bit, all that I have, if I make a a ginormous sacrifice, if I go so far as to deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I've accomplished nothing. Without love, we are noisy gongs. We accomplish nothing for Christ, and we are before him nothing. You and I need the local church to help us see through all these false spiritualities so that we don't get sidetracked or dazzled by gifts or knowledge or sacrifice and that we instead learn how to love. We need the church to preach and remind us of the gospel, to remind us that, first of all, every one of us is equally sinful. Second, that every one of us us is equally in need of Christ today. Third, that every one of us is equally loved by Christ and gifted by his spirit. And finally, that every one of us needs every one of us in the body of Christ. A church is a family where we learn through the gospel to love. Now, that's the gospel priority of love. Let me move on to the gospel demands of love now, verses 4 through 7, and how necessary it is in the church to take up our cross and to die daily. Verses 4 through 7 Paul describes what gospel love looks like. Actually, let me put it even more succinctly or more more true to the text, Paul describes what gospel love does. Because in these verses, he gives us 15 verbs, 15 action words. Love for Paul is not a feeling. It is not an aspiration. Love is not an intention. Love is not a sentiment. Love for Paul is action, specific action that reflects the gospel as we relate to different and difficult and downright contrary people. Now, I say that because these 15 verbs, as beautiful as they are, as filled with cadence as they are, These 15 verbs are not randomly chosen. Paul chooses these verbs because they are the exact opposite of how the Corinthians were treating each other. I mean, I could go through and I could take each of the 15 and show you how it describes the Corinthians as presented in the rest of the letter. For instance, in verse 4, Paul says, love does not envy. Well, in chapter 3, Verse 3, he has said, some of you are envying. Paul says here that love does not seek 
its own way. It does not insist on its own way, verse 5. Well, in chapter 10, down at the end, he's talking to the Corinthians about how they should not seek their own way, but rather seek the benefit, the blessing of others. To paraphrase one author, in relation to this text, verses 4 through 7, make the first two verbs negative, the next eight verbs positive, and the remaining five verbs negative again, and you have a description of the Corinthians. Now, all that is to say that the Corinthians were one big, messed up, dysfunctional family. But they were a gospel family. They were saved, and they were being changed by and open to the gospel Christ in his spirit. And so Paul unflinchingly presents to them the 15 demands of gospel love. And at the heart of each one is some sort of death to self. For instance, let's look at the end there of verse 5. Love is not resentful. I wish they had translated that up in the main text, as it is down in the, in the, out in the margin, the footnote. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's, it's, it's a beautiful picture, a pointed picture. Paul's saying, let the offense go. Die to yourself. Die to that desire to get even. Die to that desire to get back. Take up your cross. Die, he's saying, paraphrasing Jesus here. Die... And discover how in Christ you will rise. How the situation may well change. And if not the situation, you will change. Learn this, Paul is is saying. And learn it. Learn this kind of love with one another. Learn it again and again and again. That is why they, that is why we need the church. To learn how to love like the gospel. Two months ago, in the early days, days of Zoom, <laughs> I was on a, a Zoom call with three others. And someone said something that was really, really hurtful. I was so hurt that for the first time in my Zoom life, I realized, you know, I can turn this camera off. And, and I turned it off. So the other three participants saw this, my nameplate, okay? Stained glass mat. But here's what was really going on. (laughs) This quarantined virtual world doesn't make it any easier to love each other. And so in closing, I ask that you with your family or your friends, your small group, your ministry team, your Zoom buddies, whatever, that that you read through and discuss verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. And you talk about the question, which of these 15 verbs is really hard for me right now. That you be honest and open. 
about your answers. That you ask for prayer and for help and support. And that you commit yourselves to one another. And that you then come back to the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Let us pray. Oh, Father, Christ calls us to take up our crosses, follow him, and die daily. Holy Spirit of God, help us to follow Christ and to follow him in love, in its little deaths and in its little and blessed resurrections. For the glory of Christ, in this church, and in every church. Amen.